Welcome to Dragon Talk. Yay! Yay! Woo! Dragon it Talk! is Tasha's Cauldron of Everything Week. Welcome to Tasha Talk. Tasha Talk? Yeah. It's kind of like coffee talk. Where but with here, Tasha. On the official Dungeons & Dragons podcast. You sound like a little bit Australian I, and a little know, bit Long Island. I'm very good at accents <laughs> as well as recreating them. <laughs> None of that is true. I'm My name is Greg Tito. We got Shelly Mazanoble coming at you. You're much more of an expert at noises. Noises? <laughs> yes. yes, I am. I am a noise expert. And I also, um, as you all know, do excellent accents and impersonations. It's true. My favorite, though, is your hideous laughter. <laughs> It's pretty hideous. <laughs> I hey, we didn't rehearse this. Okay, that was just dropped right there, like off the cuff. off the cuff. So, yeah, I mean, hideous laughter is is subjective, and is. that is that's pretty hideous. That was pretty good. Yeah, I feel like uh, you know you cast a spell on all of us for that. Right. Mm. Yes. So. So yeah, Tasha's is coming out. It is. In your hands, potentially, at this moment. Yes, it should be. It's been out for like a day by the time this airs. Maybe two days. Maybe even two days. Uh, it is a wonderful tome, chock full of stuff that you can use in your game right now. We have a fantastic interview with Jeremy Crawford, uh, as well as a Sage Advice with Jeremy Crawford. Whoa. This is like a Jeremy Crawford, Jeremy, Tasha Jeremy. extravaganza this episode. So uh, strap in because we get to listen to the professor, Jeremy Crawford, speak. Professor Sage. The Sage. <laughs> professor Sage, the Sage. Do you think he cooks with a lot of Sage as well? Well, I'll have to ask him that. Maybe, because what if all this time that's why... He was the sage. <laughs> he was just like, no, no, no. It's just because I love to cook, and sage is my favorite spice herb. It's a culinary delight. Yeah, uh, no, no, no. Not because not, I know a lot of things about a lot of things. No, it's got all about the uh, parsley, sage, rosemary, and <laughs> time travel. Um, but speaking of culinary delights, uh, it is very exciting to see Heroes Feast. Still up on those New York Times and other best-selling lists. I know. All of you D&D folks out there wanting to pick it up and cook all of the fun things that Michael Whitwer, John Peterson, and Kyle Newman put together in that book is very cool. Yes, and I need to see some food pictures. I would really like to see, if you're making these recipes, um, what they turn out like. And let's let's hear about it because yeah. I love cooking and I love cookbooks. I just like to read cookbooks. It's very soothing for me. So Yeah, and this one in particular has such great photography that mm-hmm. brings the cuisine to life. Uh, it feels like this great mix of fantasy and reality, uh, which I think we all, we all need nowadays. We do, yes. And we all need food and comfort food. So, And it is the season approaching of where there's often a lot of food happening. So it is a great time to pick up a new book. So much. Oh, God, that's such a great idea to do like a uh, a menu around the holidays with your mm-hmm. family uh, that you're quarantining with and create uh, several courses of fantasy food and then maybe play some D&D. See, like this is all... We got you covered. Got you covered. Yep. 
Yep. Watch some holiday movies, some oh, holiday films. I maybe. have started. Have you? I have not, honestly. Oh, uh, I'm, but I'm deep in we it. will soon, I'm sure, start turning into all a uh, you know a disgruntled um, widower who doesn't think they'll ever find love again. But their chances are they might. Child, but their eight-year-old actually fixes them up with the little storekeeper. Who runs like a pine cone gift shop? Very niche. And but the big pine cone manufacturer wants to put that shop out of business. The funny thing is, is what you're describing is probably already made. And I'm out pretty there. sure it's it's airing right now. Yeah, you're watching it yes. as we're happening. I uh, have yeah, I'm watching it right now. I do watch those are my favorite Hallmark holiday movies. They're on kind of nonstop in this house. They're so good, um, and I think there is a lot of inspiration those of you out there playing Dungeons & Dragons can do to bring this holiday atmosphere to your games and your tables um, because everybody loves a nice tearjerker around the holidays, right? Happy tears. Happy these tears. Are, these are all happy tears. Yes. Yeah. And you know, if you have family or friends that love Hallmark holiday movies, say, and you want them to play D&D? What is stopping you from creating a D&D adventure based off of one of their favorite holiday classics? Like one of like the the Winter Prince or the Holiday Cookie Showdown or something. Like Santa's you know. little helper. Yes. Uh, yeah. There's yeah. so many uh that's, I mean, that's such a great idea, Shelley. I mean, I feel like there should be Pretty sure some way we can combine it. those things, don't you think? I think so. I mean, yeah. it just kind of feels like a lot of holiday movies would lend themselves really well to D&D Adventure. Mm. I mean, a lot of them have elves, and D&D has elves. So you don't even have to, like, make something up there. Yeah. Um, and, of course, you know... I'm sure Tasha's cauldron of everything is on everyone's list for getting stuff during this holiday, but there's a couple other fun things that you might want to think about, uh, including, you know, old standbys like the Essentials Kits and the Young Adventurer's Guides are perfect stocking stuffers for younger audiences or adults. Yeah. Um, the Great Dal Moody D&D Edition. Yes. Yeah, or Dungeon Mayhem. Uh, now, I'm just going to go ahead and say it's a classic. It's, it's a, a classic. classic. A yeah. Family holiday classic. Yes. Make that a tradition in your house. Um, Curse of Strahd revamped. But that's a beautiful, <laughs> wonderful gift that just keeps on giving for the family. What says holiday more than <laughs> sitting in a throne, sipping some red wine uh, while trying to seduce your party into becoming vampires? Like, there's nothing... You have basically described Christmas Eve in my house. <laughs> <laughs> For all of us. For everyone, yes. Super cool. Well, yeah. uh, all that fun stuff is available for you. I love to hear about people uh, jumping in and playing Dungeons & Dragons with their families around the holidays. We'll get into that more as we get closer. Um, but I can't wait to talk to Jeremy about fun um, uh, sage advice topics as well as all of the work that he and the team put into Tasha's College and everything. So... Shall we get to it? Let's do it. Let's jump in. The oh. cauldron. It's very hot in here. Well, this is, the, you can use this in your games. Ready? This is a cauldron sound. 
In a we cold had. Uh, I feel like we were just about to throw to sage advice, I but I have to tell you, uh, we <laughs> made a mac and cheese that was like the thick and creamy edition of mac and cheese. And how was that received? It it was received well. They really enjoyed it. But oh. as I was looking at the nutrition information, it's basically like double the amount of butter in it. Is basically how they make it thick and creamy. Right. Uh, and it was uh, the type of mac and cheese that kind of sticks to your insides after you eat it. Um, and it was it was glorious. Was it powder cheese? It was the powder cheese, but yeah. it, um, the recipe called for extra amounts of yeah. Butter in it I may have margarine. just made that. Uh, it was not. It didn't. It was not well received here. Oh, I don't know why. Because all it was was more butter, and it tasted delicious. But right. the child could tell it was different. I know. Anything that's like just slightly off of what they're used to, they're like, nope, I don't like it. No, like, these are. I don't like the shells. I want the noodles. I'm like th- there is literally no difference in the taste between a shell and like a little macaroni noodle. Nothing. Yeah, That's not yeah. where the difference comes, kid. It really doesn't. He won't eat shells. Learn them good. I know ours. We fight over the color. Like it has to be orange. It can't oh, yeah. be white. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. I've got I've got lots of boxes of of the white. Cheese downstairs, <laughs> which I actually like. You know, I don't. Why I mean, put artificial coloring? The cheese is not yellow. It, it feels better to serve them like a whiter powdered cheese than like a <laughs> bright orange powdered cheese. It's just slightly better, but I don't know. It, it's yeah, it's still powdered cheese at the end of the day. Yes, that's true. That's Whatever. True. Well, we have to uh, get um, Tasha's. Information about what type of mac and cheese she prefers. So let's. She can, uh, she can put a lot of butter in that cauldron. <laughs> a lot of butter. A lot of butter. <laughs> let's try to find out what uh, what Jeremy's uh, favorite mac and cheese is. Okay. Let's do it. Welcome to another segment of Sage Advice. This is the segment where I talk to Jeremy Crawford. Hi, Jeremy. Hi there. Uh, about fun mechanics in Dungeons and & Dragons and any questions that you uh, might have come up often around your table. Uh, and Jeremy is here to give you some clarifications uh, as well as some of the intent uh, behind the design. And today we are going to talk about targeting uh, your spells in Dungeons and & Dragons. And this is especially important uh, because there are some uh, new wrinkles in Tasha's College of Everything that is coming out right now that many players are interacting with uh, through previews and we'll be able to uh, get the full interaction when they have all of the content within the book. Uh, And so uh, Jeremy and I wanted to delve into how to target spells and how it works and what uh, you know the overview is and then what some of the changes are with spells in Tasha's. So so, Jeremy, why don't you give us the, the quick overview about how you uh, target things with your spells in D&D 5th edition. So, spells have typically one of several different range notations in their description. The simplest version is you'll, you'll open up a spell and it will say, range, 120 feet which typically means, if you then read down into the description of the spell, it might say, hey, you target somebody within range and the spell you know, needs to originate within that distance and affect that, that target. 
But I'm bringing up range first in our discussion of targeting because range and targeting are intermingled in our rules. Mm. If if you go to the, the section in our spellcasting rules in the player's handbook about range, you'll notice it immediately starts talking about targeting because range is all about how far away can the target of the spell be. So again, that's the simplest version if, hey, my spell can affect someone or something that is X feet away. Well, this is D&D. Magic is wonderfully varied. So it doesn't stay as simple as that. Uh, Because then sometimes, rather than picking a single creature or a single object 120 feet away, 15 feet away, 300 feet away, whatever that range is, instead a spell might create an area of effect like this fireball spell creating a big explosive sphere of fire, which must be created up to the number of feet away indicated in its range. Fireball then creates another wrinkle here because in its description, it then also refers to the people who are caught in that explosion as the spell's targets. And But if you look at our range text, it also says that that point of origin is also, in a way, a target of the spell. So you and I are talking about this precisely because the game uses the word target in a variety of different ways. Mm-hmm. We we try to just use it in a largely sort of English sense, but it appears in all of these technical contexts. Right. And then other effects in the game care about like number of targets for a spell, how far away are they, etc. So then we start getting questions. All right, there are even some more little nuances. Some spells have a range of touch, which means whatever or whomever you're affecting with the spell must be within reach. And we typically are imagining you're reaching out with a hand to touch them. But honestly, it could also be you poke them with your foot or you, you, you got them with your elbow. Uh, but typically in traditional D&D spellcasting, uh, you reach out with your hand to deliver a touch spell. I only heal with my elbow. Going forward. I think that's, <laughs> that's canon for my characters. Going, just, you got it. Heal. <laughs> yes. I love the idea of someone having this glowing <laughs> elbow that eases all of our hurts. I the patron god of elbows has given me this power. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then we also have some spells that have where you look at the range entry and it says simply self, which means the the spell in in a range sense can go no further than yourself and that also means you are targeting yourself unless the spell says otherwise, because the spell might actually say, well, you're infusing yourself with magic, so you're sort of the initial target, but we have spells with a range of self that then in down in their text will then refer to you targeting also somebody else as a result of the magic that you have infused into yourself. But wait, there's more. There's more. There, there, there is also a range notation, which is self followed by a parenthesis which then usually describes an area in that parentheses. It might say 10-foot radius. It might say 20-foot sphere. It might refer to a cube of a certain size. And there what it's indicating is that the spell originates 
with you. It extends out from your space and then fills usually some kind of area uh, or it, its effect is limited to the area indicated inside the parentheses. Now, I mentioned before our rules on range and how they immediately start talking about targets. But when it's talking about targets, you'll notice in our rules that it talks about you targeting individual creatures or objects. It talks about targeting a point of space for uh, one of the game's area of effects to suddenly bloom into being, whether that's a sphere, uh, a, a cube, a cylinder, what have you. A line is another very common one. But you'll notice in the rules that when you get down to self parentheses, it doesn't actually talk about targeting anymore. Mm. And that's intentional. Instead, it just says, now we're in essentially what we were getting at there, and we definitely could have spilled more ink on this. And I and this is this is why we get questions on it. Whenever we get lots of questions on something, I'm like, mm, we needed to write more words here. Yeah, and in some had cases, a clarifying sentence or two. To <laughs> yes, and 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 in some cases uh, like this one, I, I have to point the finger directly at myself. I should have written some more words here. <laughs> um, You're trying to be too elegant and get it into the yes, least amount of words as possible. Yes. No, and that, that by the way, is always a, a, a line I'm trying to walk because I, I love for rules to be concise, but sometimes the answer is not concision. Sometimes right. actually the answer is more words. And it was intentional that when you get to the part of our range rule that talks about that sort of self parentheses, the word target does not appear uh, because there we're dealing with an unusual set of spells that really have to define within themselves what actually is being targeted here. And there are actually some really iconic spells in the game with that self and then parentheses notation. Burning Hands has it. Lightning Bolt has it. Um, color because spray. It, is Color Spray one of those as well? Yeah. Because these are all spells that emanate from the caster. Mm -hmm. Whereas a spell that says, just say, like, range 10 feet, what that means is the, the point of origin of the spell's effect can come into being up to 10 feet away from you. And then if you use one of the things in the game that extends the range of a particular effect, you know, because there are, there are things like Spell Sniper and other effects in the game. Uh, there's a Warlock Eldritch Invocation that, that can fiddle with range. Mm -hmm. It can multiply that or extend it in some way, now suddenly meaning, oh, that thing that was 10 feet away can now be 20 feet away, or even further, moving the point of origin further and further away. The reason why some of these spells have this self-parentheses range is we are signaling to the reader this point of origin cannot move. It must always emanate from you. Uh, you are the source of this magic. Now, of course, the spellcaster is always the source of the magic, but here we're specifically talking about the source of the effect that the spell creates. And sometimes you can cause that effect to actually come into being quite a far, quite a distance away from yourself. Fireball being one of the classic examples right. of this. It, right. can be, it can be way over there. So in, in Tasha's Cauldron of Everything, uh, we have some spells that actually 
appeared in an earlier D&D book, uh, Sword Coast Adventurer's Guide, that now reappear and their range changed. And that change has, has, has naturally caused some questions. Their ranges originally were that simple X feet, mm. meaning it could have the, the or, point of origin of the spell could happen over there. So these spells were spells like Booming Blade and Green Flame Blade, which when you then read them, you see, wait a second, I'm actually making a weapon attack with these with these spells. And these were actually unusual spells when we wrote them because we had not yet created at that point spells that incorporated into themselves uh, an attack. We had spells like the Paladin Smite spells in the player's handbook that enhanced attacks but did not include within them the weapon attack itself. Here we experimented with that. And to be totally frank, the original range entries were wrong. <laughs> oh, really? Yes. Uh, the reason why we changed them in Tasha's Cauldron when we decided to bring those spells forward along with the Blade Singer because we wanted to uh, kind of freshen them up and, and make them available to a broader audience, we were looking at the spells and realized these range entries are simply wrong because like Burning Hands, like Color Spray, like Lightning Bolt, you swinging your weapon can never originate any farther away than yourself. Right. You, because so, so saying range X feet was simply an error. And so we fixed it. Now, so this now they is, have a range of self with a parentheses. Five foot radius. Five foot radius. And then inside the, the spell you read, okay, you make, you brandish the weapon you used as a part of the spell casting and you target somebody within this radius uh, to whack with, with that. That makes um, sense because it's not a, a, a spiritual weapon. It's not a summoned weapon. It is using the weapon that the character is wielding on their own. Uh, and so uh, that clarification makes a lot of sense. But how does this interact with uh, meta magic, uh, specifically twinning of of spells. So this this does make the spell ineligible for being twinned because a twin spell uh, does not allow you to twin a spell with a range of self. Uh, and because these ranges have the word self in them, they are not twinnable. And that's by design. Honestly, these never were meant to be twinnable. Because again, their range was was actually always was incorrect, uh, and and it was it. Sometimes we, you know, you'll have hindsight being twenty twenty, and you'll look at something like, "How the heck has this been out in the world this long?" Because this this range was just simply never correct. Uh, and and actually, to be clear, only only booming blade was twinnable under the old approach. Mm. Green flame blade was never twinnable because Green Flame Blade had the extra thing of you could target another person with it and you mm. can't twin something that can target multiple people. Uh, and so now Booming Blade joins Green Flame, Green Flame Blade in not being twinnable. Uh, that makes a lot of sense now. Uh, since, I mean, the whole twinning idea seems much more like you're sending out two, like Rays of Enfeeblement or something like that. Like that, that seems to make a lot more sense. Creating two blades out of nothing... Mm. Uh, just seemed to go against the spirit of what the spell was trying to create. Yeah, twin twin spell was designed to double things like charm person or uh, you know sending out two rays of enfeeblement, like you said. Uh, it it 
was never meant to like speed up your sword swings like in in the, you know in this case yeah um it it wasn't it was an unfortunate accident that booming blade was twinnable because of the range being incorrect got it uh and but then people also have wondered how do these interact with uh warcaster a a feat that allows you to make an opportunity attack with a spell as long as you target only only one thing uh, with that opportunity attack. And so then the question is, well, can you use Booming Blade with its new range of self parentheses to, to make that opportunity attack as defined by Warcaster? The answer is yes. And the reason why, it goes back to what I was saying about our, our rules on range, mm. where you'll notice that as soon as we get to the self parentheses part, we don't talk about you targeting yourself because spells in this category, you have to look at the spell to see what exactly are you targeting because all self parentheses tells us is some magic is extending out from me. We'll see who, who or what it's targeting. And in the case of Booming Blade, who or what's being targeted is the person uh, you attack with it. Uh, now, Green Flame Blade is an interesting uh uh, corner case here, green flame blade, and we clarified in the new version of it, you decide when you use it, if it's green fire f- jumps to another person. If you cause it to jump to another person, you can't use it with Warcaster because Warcaster, will, you can only use it if, to, if you target the person who triggered the opportunity attack. So if if you're willing to use green flame blade and not have the fire jump, then yes, you can use it with Warcaster. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. And that's that's where I saw some of your clarifications about can and may yes. in uh, in spells and other descriptions. It does not mean it absolutely must. Oh yeah, when we when we put into a rule the word can, like you can do such and such, that is very purposeful. What that means is like just you know, like in regular conversation, that means you now have the ability to do it but it doesn't mean you have to do it. Uh, like we, you know, we, we've, we've essentially turned, we've turned that on. You can turn, you can push that button, right. but that doesn't mean you must. It's up to you whether you do it. It's very true. I'm, yeah. You can, you know, poke yourself in the eye <laughs> if you want to, but you don't have to. <laughs> yes. yeah. But I am, whenever, whenever these questions come up about uh, targets and targeting and the interactions with, with different feats and class features, I'm always sympathetic because it's definitely a case of in our, in our effort, in our rules to use natural language as much as possible, we inadvertently, in this case, spawned a lot of questions. Uh, and that's always why I'm happy to have these conversations. Absolutely. To, to, to really help bring some some clarity uh, and also you know I've, I've seen some speculation did we make these changes to those spells for instance to to nerf certain combinations no actually the main motivation was correcting the range because it was never right <laughs> right getting the clarity that was meant to be there in the first place yeah because because these spells do not allow you to detach your arm and have it <laughs> x number of feet away slashing at somebody that and sounds I even, like a warforge feature yeah and i even joked about that actually back when these spells first came out i had some t- tweet about you know if if you combine these with you know one of these effects that increases spells range 
that effect does not in the process elongate your limbs. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and that was really me signaling, whew, we need to fix this range. Uh, yeah. And, 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 and bringing these spells into Tasha's Cauldron was an opportunity for us to do just that. Good. All right. Awesome. Well, I, I'm, I'm clear on this now. Hopefully more uh, people in the D&D community will be clear on this even before they get Tasha's uh, in their hands and start playing with, uh, with the newer versions of these spells as well as the subclasses. So thank you for, as always, uh, illuminating uh, some of these discussions, Jeremy. Uh, I'm always glad to do it. If people want to or have more clarifying questions they need from you based on these subclasses or anything else within Dungeons & Dragons, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you? Uh, I can be reached on Twitter at Jeremy E. Crawford. Excellent. I feel like I, every time I set you up, I'm, I'm giving more people uh, you know, the, the advice and clarity they need. Uh, so I will never tire of sending people to your Twitter account. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I'm, I always love seeing people's questions. And even when I don't have time to answer them on Twitter, they're still so valuable because I'll read them, they'll inform the design uh, that we do, and then they can also feed conversations uh, that you and, you and I have on shows like this. Excellent. Well, I appreciate uh, you, Jeremy, as well as all the work you've been doing uh, getting Tasha's Cauldron out for everyone to see and... Uh, It'll be a, I, I'm sure, an explosion of new questions soon. <laughs> I look forward to it. Awesome. Thanks a lot, Jeremy. Thank you. Bye. Bye. All right. So I didn't ask him about mac and cheese uh, in that sage device, but we have to do it in the interview when Missed. we call him up. Uh, there is so many things that are in. Tasha's Cauldron of Everything that we're just going to make sure and have Jeremy read it aloud to us for this entire interview. So our job here is done. Okay. Let's go to it. Done. Everyone, let us welcome Jeremy Crawford to Dragon Talk. Hi, Jeremy. Hi Yay! there. <laughs> Jeremy, you're my favorite. I love you, Jeremy. <laughs> oh, I love you too, Shelly. Oh no, it's not me. That's our studio it's audience. The studio audience. It's oh, oh, well. Yeah. But I love you too. I I mean, because I just have I, I will always remember fondly our first Gen Con years ago, walking around together there and just dreaming of going shopping at Nordstrom's. I know. It was so <laughs> close. It was just like two doors down. Yes. Yes. We will never know what treasures the Indianapolis Nordstrom held for. <laughs> yes. We'll never know. Man, oh. how long ago was that? Was that for 5th uh, edition? Uh, sorry, 4th edition? Uh, yeah, that was back in the 4th edition days. Was it? Yeah, yeah. You know, so, I, I never made it to that Nordstrom. I did, and neither did I. <laughs> I never did. I like It literally was like right down the street. And it, I just never made it. <laughs> Yeah, it's like it's it's that Nordstrom's glimmering in the Feywild. We're, we're never going to reach it. It just keeps receding into it's the distance. It does. Yeah. As soon as you get closer to it, it goes farther away. <laughs> yeah, that is not like me to to miss out on a shopping opportunity. Do you guys think that uh, Tasha is shopping at that Nordstrom right now? Where would she? Where would Tasha shop? Wherever Tasha wants. <laughs> is she like a Nordstrom kind of kind of witch, or uh, so, is she like Home Goods? So, Tasha is willing to go to Nordstrom's, but only on the annual sale because uh -huh. 
even sh- even though she is wealthy beyond imagining, she's also whip smart and she is not going to pay more than she has to. Mm. Do you think she uses a personal shopper? Like, does she just want to show up and have a dressing room full of clothes and then she'll just go, yes, yes, no, yes, no, no, yes? So so I'm deciding right now in this interview that one of the red caps in, the, in one of the paintings with her in Tasha's Cauldron of Everything uh-huh. is her personal shopper. His job is to make sure... That dressing room is stocked and ready to go when the witch queen arrives. (laughs) So good. Yes, witch queen, here are your outfits that I've uh, chosen for you. And she she does not have time. Like, you better just pick soundly, get everything really precise. You know, sometimes when you go to Nordstrom and you're like, I just want to quickly try this on, and then somebody, like, shows up throws a bunch of hangers over the door. Do they do this to men too at Nordstrom? I don't know. And they're like, oh my God, I saw you and I just thought like these would look super cute on you too. Just give them a try. I'm like, what? No. <laughs> no, thank you. I am not here to try on bathing suits. Yes. I don't want, these are not my size. Go. And and I have a rest of the day because I at least if Tasha is anything like me, oh my gosh, it takes me so long to decide on clothes. So I have to have a really like curated selection that I'm going to try on because otherwise this could turn into like, oh my God, I've been here for four hours. <laughs> it's, <laughs> been, it's been 84 years. I need, I need food. <laughs> That's well, what, yes. Yeah, my blood sugar is crashing. <laughs> I'm about to cast power word kill on somebody. <laughs> yeah. You mean, what did you call them? Red, red cap? The red caps. The yeah. red caps. So in in uh, Tasha's Cauldron of Everything, there's this glorious painting of Tasha as the Witch Queen. It's it's the chapter opening for the chapter about group patrons, and it's actually an image of her being a group patron. There's a group of wizards uh, down at the base of the throne, and she's she's guarded by these two fae creatures, red caps. One of which we now know is her personal shopper. Uh, <laughs> it's canon. It's canon. And my, I think my favorite part of that painting, I mean, there's so many things to like about it, but just check out her boots. The heels on those boots. Whew. Did you put that in the art order? Did you like do a little fashion designing while you I, were filling out these art orders? No, the, ar- the artist really, really uh, was inspired by Sean Wood's concept art for... Tasha as the witch queen, and then just went to town on those boots. Uh, and 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 the way Tasha's legs are crossed, the the boot one of the boots with that heel, oh, it's perfection. Chef's kiss. Seriously? Yes. That's oh awesome. my god! Why are we not making these? <laughs> I mean, I feel like that could be a good promotional. Let's uh, let's get some I mean, awesome shoe fashion designers on the some, horn and be some, like, let's some do swag. A um, Tasha I actually, line. I actually just opened up the PDF because I couldn't wait to see. <laughs> <laughs> like, show me these boots. <laughs> Please excuse me for a moment while I go shopping. That's awesome. Well, uh, I wanted to start. I mean, we already are delving into fun tidbits about Tasha, but uh, I think it might be interesting for people to kind of get what was the conception behind this book. Um, you know, because I, I know you've been working on it for a long time. You've been doing tons of. Unearth Arcana uh, with these subclasses for you know at least a year, if not more, um, getting feedback. So, what was what was the initial pitch for the D and D team around uh, 
this book, uh, which was called, uh, you know, codename for a long time uh, ahead of this, uh, and just recent, you know, not recently, but within the last few, um, a couple of months has been about t- uh, Tasha. So we, we start, oh, wait a second. I think Shelly just saw <laughs> I just found him. Sorry. Woo! I, first of all, I love her in this image, but oh my God. I know those boots are everything. They are everything. Yeah, I want a pair. I want like all the way up too. Mm -hmm. That heel, damn. (laughs) (laughs) So never mind. I withdraw the question. There's no reason to (laughs) because we just want these more fashion tips from Tasha, please. So uh, we we started thinking about this book very shortly after finishing up Xanathar's Guide to Everything. Mm. Uh, because we knew at some point, you know, in the coming years, there would be a reason to do another one of these books that gathers together a, a collection of expansion items for the game that are targeted at both players and dungeon masters. And so, you know, we had we had this notion uh in our minds, as we worked on many other D&D books that, you know, since then people have, have enjoyed. And we began testing different uh, character options that started to appear in Unearthed Arcana. And then eventually when we decided, okay, we are for sure doing this book and we want it to come out, in you know fall of 2020 that's when it started to come into focus that this book would likely have Tasha as the point of view character and we chose her because we wanted to pick a woman in the D&D multiverse who uh a their name is in the core books uh you know Tasha is right there in the player's handbook with Tasha's hideous laughter also somebody who has a, a, a wonderfully rich story and also who could plausibly be familiar with the broad array of things uh, present in this book. It's similar to why we chose Xanathar for Xanathar's Guide as this crime boss in you know, the most bustling city in Waterdeep. Xanathar would have the possibility of getting little tidbits of, every, of information about almost anything. And Tasha similarly uh, has this amazing history that Greg, you and I have talked about in another episode uh, that has caused her to have contacts with beings all over the D&D multiverse. She's one of the most powerful wizards in D&D's history. And so we thought she would be perfect. And also, especially because of her mix of good humor, cleverness, and sass, she would also be a wonderful companion to have along the way uh, in this book. Uh, And, you know, because we know throughout the book, she has quotes at various points talking about the book's content. And we we saw some sass in uh, Xanathar's guide as well. But Xanathar, uh, with, with its beholder mindset, which is a very alien mindset to the human mindset, I think was less relatable in some ways than Tasha, because mm. uh, Tasha is is basically one of us, uh, you know, human like us, although a human with a, a wondrous background and a bit more relatable, I think. And 
once Tasha became the point of view character for the book, that also drove some of the the content decisions that the team and I started to make because we knew we're going to have this really powerful wizard associated with this book. And so we started to ponder the various options that would appear in it through the lens of having options with a lot of otherworldly, supernatural, and magical qualities. And that led to us experimenting with uh, subclass options that in some cases are a little more off the wall than we would normally do. This this led to Tasha in some ways is responsible for there being as many magic items as there are in this book because we realized if we're going to have a Tasha's focused book, we're going to want to have some of the magic items associated with Tasha uh, and then so then well if we're going to have those magic items, we should have other magic items and. So it, this is a great example of how the point of view character actually really helped inspire some of our content decisions. Uh, you know, we That's also cool. decided we, we we wanted a few more Tasha's spells. Well, then if we're going to have a few more Tasha's spells, then we're also going to might as well join those with some other spells and, you know, so on and so forth. Uh, so, I love that. So Tasha, more than just being a commentator on the book's content uh, in a way was uh, our muse as we were coming up with some of this content. The uh, connection to Xanathar's Guide to Everything too, I think a lot of people um, you know, get it now, but it's good to make that kind of clear that like, that's why it's tall, Tasha's Cauldron of Everything is that it kind of continues upon you know, the style of book that that was. Um, if, you, if you, there was an alternate title, what would you, you know, because... You know, Book of the Plains. She has the Demonomicon. She's got lots of other, uh, you know, things that we could have gone in. But that's that's the main reason why we chose for everything, uh, right? Yeah, and and actually, uh, you can see, especially on the standard cover of the book, uh, visual evidence of one of the other titles we were uh, considering. Because one of the other titles we were considering was Tasha's Grimoire of Everything, mm. which is one of the reasons why she's holding that book. Uh, so we, when we wrote the art order, we basically covered our bases so that whatever title we ended up choosing, the painting would work. <laughs> we, <laughs> we need a book, book we need a and cauldron. we need a cauldron. <laughs> we just that. Done. Yeah. Um, I love that. Uh, but, you know, as there's, there's so many things in this book, magic items, group patrons, uh, you know, uh, character options, uh, the subclasses for each of the 10 classes uh, now in Dungeons & Dragons 5th edition uh, is really the meat of this book. Is that, would you say that's correct? Yeah, I, I think, you know, everything in this book is, is exciting in some way to me, not only as, you know, the person who oversaw the creation, but also just as a D&D fan. But I do think when it comes to uh, different tables engagement, one of the ways that groups are going to most often see pieces of this book popping up into play is when someone at the table makes a character using one of these subclasses. So, And also the subclasses were the piece that had the largest amount of community involvement because we've been sharing versions of these subclasses uh, with the broader D&D community through Unearthed Arcana, you know, going back uh, into 2019. And the feedback that people gave us on those subclasses 
has fed directly into our thinking on how to refine these subclasses to address the feedback we got and to create what we think are the best versions of each of these subclasses for D&D. And that's, that's what people are going to see when the book comes out on the 17th. They're going to get to see uh, the, the culmination of you know, over a year and a half of conversation between the D&D studio and, and the broader D&D community on what do we want to see. And I, I think attached to those subclasses, the other, the other piece of this book's uh, heart are the new optional class features mm. uh, because uh, each class is going to get new features that players will have the option of incorporating into characters who are members of those classes. And the Unearthed Arcana that presented those class feature options to the world was by far the most popular Unearthed Arcana we have ever released for 5th edition. Wow. Uh, and and I'm and and basically the most popular on on several metrics because it not only uh, attracted more responses in the survey than we'd ever received for an Unearthed Arcana article, but also the the overall satisfaction scores were across the board uh, the highest we've ever seen, especially for an Unearthed Arcana that included as much uh, content as that particular one did. And so people are going to get new toys to play with, even if they don't use one of the new subclasses. Because uh, let's say you're playing a rogue and, and you're, you want to keep playing your thief from the player's handbook, but you might want to start trying out the new aim option for cunning action that's introduced in Tasha's Cauldron. And so this time... Even more so, I'd say, than in Xanathar's Guide, there really is something for everybody uh, because even, even if you don't get a subclass, your character can still get new class features in this book. Do you have a favorite subclass? Oof. It is always hard for me to pick because I love something about all of them. Oh, my goodness. I am I am I permitted to pick several favorites? Yes. Sure. <laughs> okay. Wait, hold on. You can pick three. All oh. right. All right. I I <laughs> I I am willing to abide by the dice. Okay. <laughs> okay. So three. Three favorite subclasses. Keeping in mind I like all of them. But if like today I were gonna like, all right, I want to make a character. One of the ones I would pick is the Circle of Stars for the Druid. Oh, nice. uh, be, because Partly because I love the mysticism of that subclass and this notion not only of channeling the magic of constellations, but having those constellations appear on you. Uh, I, I just think the aesthetic for that uh, is really wonderful. Uh, I also uh, would love to play a Psy Warrior. Uh, these are mm. the fighters who use the power of their mind uh, as weapon and as shield, you know, creating telekinetic force fields, hurling things around with their minds. Uh, I think it would be a lot of fun. And the art that we have for the Psy Warrior is fantastic. All right, number three. Oh, my goodness. This We're going to hold you to it. You can only do three. No. This is going to be tough. You know what? I... 
I'm going to pick from my third, the aberrant mind sorcerer. Oh, nice. Uh, and, and part of that is the, the aberrant mind has some really awesome psychic powers, but I also really enjoy in the final version of this subclass, the aesthetic range of the class that we're delivering. Because if you want, you can make this character, uh, you know, just have sort of glimmering eyes as they, as they use the power of their mind, or you can have like, you know, tentacles and, and other ooky stuff. Uh, so, you know, you can, you can really push it uh, in terms of the type of character you want to play with that subclass. Uh, and plus just the, the abilities are, are really interesting and they're fun to pair with the sorcerer's metamagic options. Uh, so I think all three of those subclasses uh, would be a hoot. You mentioned, okay. um, you know, the playtest period, uh, essentially by doing all these on Arthur Kana and uh, three of those, or two of those three classes, uh, subclasses are psionic uh, in nature. And that was a large shift over the course of the uh, on Arthur Kana. Do you want to talk a little bit about how you guys were thinking about psionics and how you eventually got to the way that they are portrayed here in Tasha's Cauldron of Everything? Yeah, we, we, over the course of the Unearthed Arcana, did try several different approaches with psionics. And the fact that, that we did try several approaches wasn't really surprising, because if you look at the history of D&D, D&D has, has taken a number of different approaches to how psionics function. If you look at first edition, they're not the same as they are in second edition, and those aren't the same as they are in third edition, and those aren't the same as they are in fourth edition. So there really is not a psionic through line uh, in D&D, other than to say D&D has always had psionic powers in some form. Mm. Uh, and it's just how they function, though, has, has varied uh, quite a bit. So we knew that as soon as we decided we wanted to include some psionic options in this book, that we would need to go through several rounds of design to really zero in on what what do fans of the game as it currently stands want to see when it comes to psionically themed characters? And so we, you know, we at first experimented with very different approaches for the subclasses of different classes. Then we tried a unified approach where, you know, there was the, the fighter subclass, the rogue subclass, and the sorcerer subclass that all shared sort of a, a similar mechanic. Uh, we also had a psionic wizard at one point, which didn't survive uh, the playtest process. Uh, <laughs> and then we arrived where we are in the final book, where as a result of the playtest feedback, we saw that people liked there being some similar functionality in the rogue's soul blade subclass and the fighter's psi warrior subclass. But I think playtesters rightly pointed out that trying to use the same psionic functionality in the sorcerer subclass was a bit too much. It, it was the game design equivalent of a hat on a hat because sor sorcerers already <laughs> have spells with spell slots and sorcery points to spend with their metamagic options and other special abilities. And then the hat we put on those really other two hats 
was, oh, and now you also have the psionic energy die to spend. It, it, it was just a bridge too far. Mm. So what we ended up doing with the sorcerer subclass is creating a hybrid version of our previous aberrant mind and that psionic soul sorcerer really bringing together the elements that playtesters were the most happy with and then striving in our final design to deliver a psionic sorcerer experience that was not overly complicated. Uh, the the soul the um, the, I'm just like wait soul blade soul soul knife soul knife <laughs> that's a knife um, uh, the uh, the rogue subclass and the fighter subclass they both have ended up using uh, a psionic energy die as people saw in the play test but it doesn't it no longer uh, grows and shrinks uh, because the feedback we got is people felt that was too complicated. Uh, and so now you still have fun dice you get to spend on your psionic abilities, but you just spend those dice rather than a die, you know, going up in, in size and going down in size, uh, which I thought was a fun idea, but people were like, oof, it's a bit too much. Uh, it was a, sort of another case of a hat on a hat. Right. And, and, and Shelly, we, we're just going to keep going back to fashion. I, I know. I, I love that analogy. I also love the aberrant mind has one of Tasha's best quotes, I think, in the whole book. Because that's one of the things that I love about the book is that you get a little taste of Tasha throughout. She has her little interjections in there. Can I read it? Oh, please do. Tentacles, psychic powers, beings from beyond the stars... One person's bad dream is another person's good time. <laughs> I just, I love it. I Did you write that, Jeremy? So, or is that Wes? Uh, perhaps. So that that one was both of us. Ooh. Uh, yeah. So so Tasha's quotes were all written by Wes Schneider and me. Uh, Wes Wes did an initial pass on them, and then I went through, did some tweaks, and then wrote some additional ones. Uh, and that one, I think that one was actually a fusion of two other quotes we had, and we ran out of space for one of them oh. and, and tur turned it into, into that little bit of uh, delicious sass. It's very sassy. And <laughs> I love it. it. It resonated with me. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I love, too, that you so elegantly described like how playtest feedback you know, over the last year and a half has impacted the design and how uh, it's just a, a great tenet of fifth edition from D and D next to, you know, the current releases today about how it is really the D and D fans who are shaping this game and these new subclasses. Absolutely. Uh, we, we have carried the passion for incorporating feedback into the game, going all the way back to those D and D next days and it's informing everything we're doing on our future books. Uh, you know, we've we've already released Unearthed Arcana articles uh, that are for books that come out after Tasha's uh, because of how committed we are to continuing this ongoing conversation, this sort of designing in public uh, that that we've really loved doing uh, throughout the life of this edition. Were there any things that uh, you received in feedback for this book that 
surprised you? Uh, anything that you were like, whoa, I really thought this was going to be you know, a home run or, hey, I, I'm, I'm putting this out there, but I'm pretty sure people aren't going to like it, but then they right. did like it. You know, like what, what, what was something that you were like, whoa, that was, I'm really glad we did this play testing because we got this feedback. So a great example of how sometimes what we read online initially is not an accurate uh, foreshadowing of the feedback we get on the survey is mm. when we released the uh, Wild Soul Barbarian, which is now called the Wild Magic uh, Barbarian in, in the book. The, the sort of initial anecdotal response on Twitter and Reddit was mixed. There were people who really dug it and then other people who were like, ooh, this is a little too wild for my taste. <laughs> uh, what's all this you know, wild magic stuff going on with this barbarian? But then when we got the survey, which is from thousands of people as opposed to tens of people because it it's all we always are struck because of how much data we get of how we always have to kind of cur- make sure to to not get too swept up in initial sort of anecdotal responses to things because even if there's a lot of passion on social media if you count the number of people it's never as many people as who respond to our surveys, which is usually in the thousands as opposed to the tens or the hundreds. And when we got that survey feedback, the satisfaction scores for that barbarian were through the roof. Uh, And, and so what that told us is, all right, we did see some initial mixed response, but then when it came time for the survey, people were like, Oh my gosh, no, we really love this concept. They, They gave us some great feedback on things for us to refine, and we addressed those concerns in the final version. Uh, There was particularly some concern about a feature we had early on that allowed the barbarian to recharge other people's spell slots. And in our original design, it it was definitely too generous. And so we, we reframed that for the final version. Uh, But people are going to get that wild magic barbarian that uh, tickled them. Uh, back when we released it in in UA, that is super cool, and I do love that the the play the feedback really is so thoughtfully considered, and it it does it changes things. It really does. Absolutely, and it it also results in us saying goodbye to things sometimes that we love. Uh, you know, we we really enjoyed, for instance, uh, creating the onomancy wizard. Uh, but that wizard just they decided to stay in their study. And <laughs> oh, not not ready yet. Not ready not for ready. prime time. Yeah, yeah. But maybe the, maybe another time. And and that is Shelley. That is such a good point because many many times, especially for a book like this, we might see in the playtest feedback now is not the time. But that hmm. doesn't mean it's gone for good. Uh, right. We have all sorts of things that might not make it today, but then they just, they go back into the laboratory and they might reemerge later, uh, either under the same name or sometimes under a different name. There's in fact an example of that in this book. Back back when we were working on Eberron Rising from the Last War, where we first introduced the Artificer class, we released in Unearthed Arcana a subclass called the Archivist. And we got some really uh, good substantive feedback on that subclass, but the satisfaction scores, they weren't low, but they also weren't high enough 
for us to feel like we had a clear mandate to move forward with the design as it was. And one of the bits of feedback that we kept seeing when we went through was, wow, this really feels like a wizard subclass. And so what we did for Tasha's Cauldron of Everything is we took the archivist, reimagined it as a wizard subclass, released it in Unearthed Arcana as the Order of Scribes. The satisfaction scores were then much higher than they were for the archivist. And now that subclass is going to be in Tasha's Cauldron of Everything, uh, now a wizard subclass. And so basically nothing, nothing when it comes to our game design is necessarily ever dead forever. Uh, again, yeah. it, that, that's why I often like to just say, no, it just, you know, it's hanging out. It's hanging out for a while longer. It's uh, in the brain pan. You know, yeah. Yeah. Getting, uh, Where yeah. is it though? Like, is it, do you have like a folder of like <laughs> darlings? <laughs> like, we, darlings like, you've killed? <laughs> they're yeah, not we, killed though. Yeah, they just, they <laughs> They've just been have spared. to wait. Yeah, yeah. Um, yes. They, we actually have uh, multiple folders of of them. Uh, Binders of <laughs> subclasses. <laughs> I know, I kind of want to go through it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And we have, uh, you know, we have archive folders for past books where you can go in and actually it's like, oh my gosh, there's a whole like cast of characters here who didn't make it, but that doesn't mean they won't make it at some point. You never know. That's yeah. never. And, and that's true not only for subclasses, but it's true for spells that we tinker with, magic items, monsters. We have many that, uh, some that have made it out into Unearthed Arcana and then vanished. But then we also have even more that we've designed internally and never showed in Unearthed Arcana. I mean, so we have, I almost feel like we have a whole island of not misfit toys. I was just going to But just, but basically <laughs> toys, toys that are just, they're waiting their turn. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, and I liked what you said earlier when you said it might not just be the right time, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. it's not even necessarily because the design needs more time to bake, but maybe the 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 community needs to get to somewhere a place where they're they're excited to to enter this new kind of territory, right? Like it's there there's a right time in the community as well. Absolutely. And that that is an important factor for us because one of the things that is especially on my mind whenever I'm pondering what rules elements are we going to really invest in in the next year in our design, uh, because you know everything we work on takes time, I'm always wondering and then looking at the data to see what does the community want now? And then I have to do some predicting. What are they going to want, you know, a year, year and a half from now? Uh, because we're often working that far ahead. And often it really is just, well, they don't want it now. But we'll check back in. Right. And and it could be in two years, that thing that wasn't that that wasn't in season back then, it's now what everyone wants. Uh and, I think that's and, why we're going to reintroduce Crystal Pepsi for all of you. <laughs> <laughs> it just wasn't the right time. The time feels right. It, feels it definitely right. feels right. 2020. Bring it, bring me back the Crystal Pepsi. I don't think anybody had that on their their bingo card. Uh, oh my goodness. It, you know, a, another fascinating example of this and anyone who is with us in the D&D next playtest might be able to remember this. But in Tasha's Cauldron for Everything, we introduce a collection of new summoning spells Mm. that have 
the stat blocks for the creature you summon right there in the spell. And these are special customizable stat blocks. Rewind the clock. Way back when we did the D&D Next Playtest, we introduced a, a similar approach to the druid's wild shape, where in, the, in one of the D&D Next versions of wild shape, we put the stat blocks right in the feature and you could kind of reskin them and whatnot. And at the time, the community didn't want that kind of approach. Uh, they were looking for a more traditional approach to uh, wild shape. You know, huh? I want to, you know, go grab a, a monster stat block and turn into that. And so that's the direction we ended up going in in the player's handbook. Well, now, now, now jump back to the present. We then presented knowingly that we had done actually the same kind of approach back in D&D Next, this new approach to summoning where it's just like what we did back then with Wild Shape. And now people are like, yes, please give this to us. And, 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 and part of that is because people had spent, at least with summoning spells, the last, the last you know, now, gosh, almost, I guess, six years uh, since uh, the Player's Handbook came out, playing with summoning where you do go to monster books and pick out stat blocks and people are now like, okay, yes, please just give me a stat block in the spell that I get to customize <laughs> and explains very clearly how it works. Uh, and, and on top of that is a spell I can cast in combat uh, because we, we made most of the summoning spells in the player's handbook something you had to cast outside combat, partly because of the complexity of those spells. Mm -hmm. We didn't want to bog things down. But for Tasha's, we, we had several goals for those spells. We, A, wanted them to be easier to use by putting this special stat block right there in front of the player. But we also wanted you to be able to cast it in combat because in so many fantasy stories and also in other uh, fantasy games, the person's there and just you know, suddenly calls the creature forward and has them lunge at, at their foe. And that's definitely... A, a bit of the, the game's fantasy that we wanted to make sure was alive and well uh, in the game in Tasha's Cauldron. That's a really I great example because it really cool. shows, you know, a growth in the player base, right? Like, you know, the player base was uh, pretty confident in their feedback, you know, more, I guess eight years ago, seven years ago when you introduced that during D&D Next. And then, you know, here we've had all this um, influx of new audience coming into and learning this game. And, and you know, they uh, overwhelmingly chose like, no, I think convenience of play and having that fantasy of casting something during battle, um, you know, kind of changes it and makes it uh, more, you know. So I love that that's a, a really illustrative example of the D&D team, you know, listening to the current temperature of, of what's going on in play. And, and it's also a great example of why I, I often say that our job of listening and conversing with the community never ends. Right. Because as the community grows and also as people's tastes change, what people want is also going to grow and change. And so what, what people said they wanted of the game six, seven, eight years ago isn't necessarily the same thing that the majority of the D&D community wants today. And, right. that's, and that's why we check back in with the community, you know, over and over and over again to, to see, okay, where are we now? Uh, I, I wonder if like the 2020 with like all of this online playing or, you know, like, and of course, like having new people 
joining the D&D community, but like, I wonder if you'll start seeing results that are like skewed towards like not being in the same space or, you know, like mm. not like be, everybody being remote. I just, if, if any of that would infiltrate feedback and how that would impact. I, I bet it could. Future products. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. I mean, everybody's mindset's a little bit different. I mean, it's, it's even though it's theater of the mind, there you probably are playing D anD D differently online than you do when you're together. And and you can even see that in one of the sections of Xanathar's Guide versus Tasha's Cauldron. Back when we were working on Xanathar's Guide, I used to actually get a lot of questions about playing D&D on a grid with miniatures. Mm. Oh, interesting. Not surprisingly, I almost never get questions like that anymore. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, that which, is interesting. Which is, which is one of the reasons why, while Xanathar's had a section on, you know, tips on, uh, you know, using area of effects and, and other elements of the game on a grid, Tasha's has no such section uh, because... Again, the community's interests and needs have have evolved, uh, and but then it's possible in a year or two suddenly I'm going to be asked questions and see a lot of interest in using miniatures again. Right. <laughs> I uh, I mean, speaking of all the other sections in the book, I really love the group patron idea uh, about having a codified thing that you know dungeon masters have used you know since the game began of like these ideas of of people who were or npcs who were giving tasks to the players and kind of uh uh creating a relationship with the party um but having these storytelling tools uh i think it's going to be a great boon for people uh and we'll hopefully see a lot more of them uh being used going forward i agree and i think the perks that we provide for each of the the group patrons, these perks you can get if you work for that patron will also be a nice little nudge for some groups that uh, might be hesitant at first to formalize, yeah, we work for this sovereign or we are working for this criminal syndicate. Uh, You know, as soon as you put a carrot out there, people Hmm. are like, oh, maybe I do want that cool thing. Uh, So those perks are there uh, to provide some concrete encouragement to engage with a group patron. But I'm especially interested to see how having a group patron can alter uh, a particular adventuring party's story. And I think it will also be fun to see the concept evolve. Uh, I'll be interested to find out if some DMs explore a group maybe having more than one patron. And what does it mean when your two patrons or your three patrons give you conflicting assignments. Mm. And, you know, where where do you go from there? Uh, that That's actually something I am toying with very lightly in my current home D&D game. I, I had everyone essentially choose a personal patron, which for the purposes of my home game, I called, I called an entanglement. <laughs> And then, and then what I'm doing behind the scenes is seeing how the group having different entanglements uh, affects the story. Uh, and it's, it's been fun because essentially what I did is just take the group patron concept, but then individualize it. And some of the characters have the same patron, but then others have other ones and they don't all necessarily want the same things. Mm. Mommy and daddy are fighting. <laughs> <laughs> 
I feel like that's such great storytelling there too. Like you know, if they're if they're, I mean, going on the faith thing because I think you know, uh, knowing what I know about you, I'm pretty sure your campaign has something to do about that. Uh, um, it, it does. Yeah. So <laughs> having you know the seely and the unseely court having uh, you know loyalties from different members of the party, uh, I could just see that being a ton of ton of fun to play out. Yeah. Although in this case, the the players don't don't yet know which fey groups are attached to Ooh. the groups they're entangled with. Mm. They might find out. Yeah. We'll see. So the uh, you know, in addition to the magic items and spells and uh, amazing kind of uh, things that you can very easily get into uh, your game and that has been used for for many years. Um, I really appreciate the section on puzzles in Tasha's Cauldron of Everything. Uh, I know, having worked with Elisa Teague on a bunch of different things, including the um, ARG surrounding uh, the Waterdeep campaign, as well as uh, here in D&D Live 2020 when we were introducing Icewind Dale, uh, she's just such a great and creative puzzle maker, and I'm, I'm really proud to see her work uh, show off in, in, in Tasha's here. Yeah, it it was an easy call for us to go to her to work on this because not only of uh, how good she is at puzzle design, but also because of her love of D&D. And she she has so much experience fusing D&D with puzzle making and puzzle solving. And so we were like, absolutely. She's the one we want to work with to create the section for DMs. And I include myself in this group of DMs who might like the notion of including right. puzzles, but I'm... Where I'm, do you begin? Yeah, yeah. Uh, because, you know, there's there's always that line you're walking between challenging the players versus the characters, and is it D&D enough? And I think she strikes that balance with the puzzles in this book. And I'm not only looking forward to DMs out in the world getting their hands on these, I'm looking forward to using them and also repurposing them. Because in the book, we do give some tips on, hey, this puzzle has you know, this presentation, but you could actually reskin aspects of it to use it in a different kind of environment or with a different set of NPCs. So there, I think there's a, a nice amount of flexibility there uh, for, for DMs to take these and integrate them into their home campaigns or even into an official adventure like Rime of the Frostmaiden, where if somebody is like, I want I want a bit more of a puzzle element, well, you know, go through the puzzle section of Tasha's Cauldron and see if something there would fit. And there, there are enough puzzles with very different puzzling styles in Tasha's Cauldron yeah. that you do have a, a, a nice amount of options. Uh, basically, there there's some good selections on the rack to go back to shopping. Uh, uh, <laughs> the Nordstrom rack. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> well, and I especially, because I've been that player and DM who has seen puzzles and you're like, well, you know, if you, it, it, the, 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 the solution is the fun part. Sometimes the lead up to that is not as fun for a player who can get frustrated, and myself is one of those where I'm just, I just want to know the answer, you know. And so, what I love, really appreciate about um, this section is that it provides a way to prov- to to give hints to your players that don't give it away, that don't feel like you're just, 
you know, uh, giving them the solution, but you're giving the the right pieces of information. I think Elisa did such a great job, uh, as well as the rest of the team who revised all those sections, to um, tie that to skills too. That that it's still it's a very D and D thing to be like, oh, if someone is a you know gets a fifteen uh, DC on their Arcana, they'll get this little piece of information, which doesn't give the puzzle away, but gives just enough to a know that there is a puzzle there, and then also uh, to hopefully give them the tools that they need to solve it. Yeah, yeah, I I love that element too, and also we even include in in several of the puzzles. Here's where you might just want to stop uh, you know, <laughs> <laughs> if if your group is just super frustrated. If you and, can't take a hint, yeah, read the room, dungeon masters. <laughs> yes. Come on. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly, exactly. Oh, that's really good. Now I just yeah. need some uh, uh, some advice on what to do if they just avoid the puzzle altogether. Like, like to- yeah, Greg was saying he he tried to do a puzzle in his his game yesterday, and the players were like, nope. Yeah, <laughs> the, I introduced it. Everyone was like, "Great," thinking about it, and then they decided to spend the session exploring a completely different area. I'm like, "Oh, okay, well." I, and Shelly's suggestion was to just put the puzzle there, and I'm like, "Well, I, you know, it doesn't <laughs> just always make work. it follow them around <laughs> until they solve it." <laughs> <laughs> which, which is a DM trick I have used with certain things before, where it's like, "Oh, you don't want to do this now? Just you wait." <laughs> You open the door and there's a puzzle. (laughs) Knock, 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 adventurers. (laughs) You want to go behind door number one? Well, door number three has exactly what was behind door number one as well. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's not going away. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, So, you know, you and I, Jeremy, went into some of the lore behind um, uh, Tasha uh, on a special section, but I'd love to, uh, you know, talk a little bit about the uh, demon connection because I feel like there's a lot of a- mm. items uh, and stuff in here that could be a lot of fun for people who um, want to you know kind of explore that 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 part of the book so uh, in the the magic items section of the book there is the demonomicon of Igwelf and as some of our listeners might not know Igwelf and Tasha are the same person and if if you go through D&D history and see the number of times Tasha and Igwolf, those names have shown up, you suddenly realize, oh my gosh, she has been busy. And, <laughs> and, and more ways and, than one. Yes, and in, in her busyness, she created this artifact that is one of the most hated, if not the most hated artifact in the D&D multiverse by demons. Because... <laughs> Because Tasha created this demonomicon to uh, control and oppose them, and in the in the process, even was able to stitch a little pocket of the abyss into the book itself. Uh, that's how crazy this uh, this artifact is in its might, uh, and uh, that is one of the the artifacts here. Uh, you can also get Baba Yaga's Mortar and Pestle, uh, which and, and Baba Yaga was uh, Tasha's mom. Uh, so we we included a number of of items like that in the book tied to Tasha's past, and they could easily be items that you are as adventurers trying to acquire yourself, or that you're trying to get away from your foes mm. uh, because a number of these items uh, could be quite terrifying in the hands of your enemies. And 
You will also see uh, some of that fiend summoning in the summoning spells, and also one of Tasha's uh, new spells in the book, Tasha's Otherworldly Guise, uh, is all about adopting characteristics of the outer planes. But we made sure in this spell to, to nod to the fact that Tasha isn't just familiar with traveling to the lower planes, but also the upper planes. And so this spell allows you to adopt characteristics that are associated with fiends or celestials. So you can... You can be a little bit like a demon or a devil if you want, or you can be angelic uh, using this. And there again, we're getting at the uh, the moral flexibility that Tasha has. Uh, that you know, she she does what she feels she needs to do, and uh, you you again even get a taste of that in in one of these new spells. That is cool. I mean, I feel like there's so much more in this book. Uh, to go over like that's what's uh, you know a, a bit um, bizarre for us is that you know it's a, it's a 196 pages that's right 192 pages 192 mm-hmm. um, but it feels like there's like four pages of content on each one of those pages like it's just chock full of stuff it is it is deep there's a lot it, and it, it felt like that making it <laughs> <laughs> when the layout uh, that. Uh, um, Trish Yoakum and the rest of that team, you know, putting it all together. I mean, it is it is yeah. tough to pack it full. Yeah, it yes. was sort of it was sort of like uh, sitting on a steamer trunk. You know, it's like, oh my gosh, this will only fit you know two weeks of clothes, but I have tried to put in three weeks in, into this thing, mm-hmm. and now let's just you know sit on it and hope I can get it to close. Yeah, uh, because you know, of course, the book also has the exploration of different supernatural regions different magical phenomena, uh, also has uh, rules on different environmental hazards. These are all here as tools for the DM to pick up and fairly easily inject the flavor of a particular type of fantasy realm pretty simply into their campaign. So for instance, if a, if a DM has decided, all right, this group is going to you know, wander into uh, this realm that has been bedeviled by ghosts for generations, and you really want to quickly inject this feeling of being in a haunted realm, well, we have rules now on here's, here's what can happen. Uh, when you are in a whole area that has basically been taken over by the unquiet dead with table a table to roll on to find out you know what kind of spooky thing pops out uh, to uh, to to scare you or complicate your adventure or to maybe even introduce a new quest uh, and you know so we do that for a variety of different kinds of supernatural regions and even though they're called supernatural regions, a DM could easily take these rules and apply them to a dungeon, to a castle, to a house. Uh, we we purposefully leave the notion of region very open ended. Uh, you know, you you could you could decide as DM, I'm going to apply this table of environmental effects to this one room in this dungeon. Uh, so really, it's the region is a uh, can expand and contract. Uh, the meaning of it uh, based on uh, the DM's needs for their campaign. That's a really cool idea. That's it's a great inspiring. way to inspiring. Yeah, it's a great way to make just people be like, all right, this is not your normal area, you know, no, no matter what it is, as you said, like, you know, 
uh, that I'm going to use it. I'm going to totally use it. And it, 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 the beauty of these tables and we created them this way on purpose is even if you decide not to use the rules that we provide that, that say when these different supernatural effects might trigger, you can also, if you want, just roll on these tables at some point. Like, let's say you're, you're, you're running a game and they're in the middle of some mind flayer colony. And you think as a DM, I just want something really strange and otherworldly and kind of ooky to happen right now. I'm going to roll on that far realm table that's in Tasha's Cauldron of Everything to see what strange and probably slimy thing uh, just just occurred uh, here in this dungeon or wherever the adventure is taking place. Who doesn't love a table? Oh my God. All of them. Shelly, I was yeah. about to say that exact same thing. Like that really? it was the exact inflection and everything. I mean, like, who doesn't love rolling on tables? It's the best <laughs> fun part of D&D as a dungeon master. It really is. I love it. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that I love, oh, sorry, you were going to go on about mm-hmm. I want to find out what you love. Sidekicks. <laughs> oh, yes. oh my gosh. That's exactly what I was about to talk about. <laughs> we are on the same wavelength. I think I've got some psionic powers. <laughs> You're an aberrant mind. I am. I'm incepting both of you right now. <laughs> oh my gosh. Everyone heard it here first. <laughs> Jeremy, we're having field roast for dinner. Field roast. Yummy. Mm. You, I actually really like field roast. And now I don't know if I actually like field roast or if you, I've been inspected. I like Greg, field roast. Greg, you will, put on, you will make sushi rice at 4.30. I, I, I have to. <laughs> I need to. It's so weird. I don't know how I know that. Sidekicks. Yeah, so I, I am so glad people are now going to get their hands on the full sidekick rules. People of the Essentials Kit, of course, got to see an implementation of those rules where they got specific sidekicks that they could level up uh, with their characters. But now we're giving DMs the ability to make all sorts of different sidekicks uh, with information going from level one all the way up to level 20. The, The sidekick classes that we present can be used for actual sidekicks, but they can also actually be used for just traditional NPCs. Uh, And if a person really, really wanted to, they could just play one uh, because we give you all the information you need to go from, you know, level one to level 20. You're not going to be as powerful as somebody who takes takes one of the classes from the player's handbook, but you're still going to be able to make a meaningful contribution to your adventuring group and the sidekicks each have little little wrinkles in their abilities that the player's handbook classes don't have. So I, I could see some people, in fact, I already know there are people because of feedback we got to the original sidekick, Unearthed Arcana, who are actually eager to play these classes. You know, there are people who are like, I want to play the expert. Hmm. Uh, you know, and then the three classes are, there's the warrior, the expert, uh, and the spellcaster. And I'm especially looking forward to seeing the different critters people have joined mm-hmm. their adventuring group uh, because these sidekicks, of course, don't have to be humanoid. Uh, we show in the art. This, uh, the art I love. I yeah, love like there's that wolf that on the team, I think the wolf was everyone's favorite. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you could, you know, befriend all sorts of different mm, creatures. 
and, and be like, hey, come along. And then that creature is leveling up uh, with your group using one of these classes. So I, I think that it might be a, also a good way to introduce someone to D&D because they're easier to create. And they're, like you said, they're, 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 they're like a little scaled back from like, it's yeah. probably good to not have that many choices when you're first learning. And that you could just create a sidekick and be like, here, you're just going to join our party for the day. Teach them a little bit about D&D. Go off on your own. It, it, in fact, Shelly, we love that idea so much. We've actually talked about what if in some you know future adventures, we actually suggested starting your character off as a sidekick and then multi-class oh. into one of the classes in the player's handbook or just keep leveling up as a sidekick. Yeah. That's what, that's what I love about this system is that it's so modular. You can use it, you know, just as uh, it's presented in the essentials kit where they're just sidekicks that you use mm-hmm. to, to fill out your party or you can do them as NPCs. I mean, everybody uh, loves the convenience of having just like the spy and the commoner and all those stat blocks. But, you know, if you're just like, oh, I want to tweak it just a little bit, you can do that so easily with the sidekick rules. Um, I think that's going to be a great tool that people are going to use many, many different ways in their storytelling. And I agree. And this is yet another example, by the way, of the community helping shape the final version of the sidekicks. Because the original version that we released was more complex than what people are going to see in Tasha's Cauldron. And the reason for that change is we heard overwhelmingly from the playtesters that, A, they loved the sidekicks, but they wanted them to fulfill their identity even better. And the identity that the the playtesters identified was being pretty straightforward to play and not having a whole lot to keep track of as they level up. And we really part and greatly simplified their leveling up process. Uh, People will see that the final version of the spellcaster has far fewer spells than the playtest version did because for that, the feedback we got is this NPC spellcaster or sidekick spellcaster feels too much like a player's handbook spellcaster. Uh, And so we took that feedback very seriously and and scaled it way back. That character is still going to make a solid contribution to a group. Uh, You know, they still are going to be able to choose damage spells or healing spells or other sorts of helpful magic and bring able in whatever group they're a part of. But they're, but they're not just like a priest light or a uh, you know, sorcerer light. It is their own way, way yeah. to, to level up, which I think is great. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Sweet. Well, the final thing I want to point out, and we've kind of been talking about it throughout, but the artwork in Tasha's College of Everything is just superb. Uh, you know, Kate Irwin uh, leading the art direction for this entire book has been just knocking it out of the park as with the you know myriad of, of artists that we work with on this. Um, Shelly mentioned the art orders uh, and, and you know it does start from you guys describing it but you know how many times have you been impressed by seeing the actual artwork you know come to life from the paragraph that you wrote about it you know? Oh every time uh, yeah the for for anyone watching who doesn't know our process our our team of writers and and so in this case with this book that included me and the other designers on the book we write these little paragraphs describing uh here's what we'd love to see in this work of art but 
it never matches what the artists then give us under the direction of Kate Irwin. Uh, the, there are details that the artist brings to the image that weren't in our original description. You know, I, you know, our description might have been, you know, she's pointing over there and summoning an angel, the end. <laughs> and then you get the image and it's like, oh my gosh, it's, it's so luminous and immersive and, you know, so many uh, lovely touches. And, you know, Kate works with the artists to draw a lot of those beautiful grace notes out. Uh, and she also, a huge piece of, of the the wonderful creativity that she brings to each of our books is also carefully selecting the artists who do these paintings mm. because she she reads our descriptions and then matches them with the artists who she thinks will give us a particularly wonderful realization of what we were ma imagining. Uh, and, and so a big part of her work as art director is, is actually that relationship with each of the artists and knowing what they like and what they're good at and what they would be especially suitable to portray. Uh, so it's, yeah. it is always a privilege to work with her and with the artists uh, who work for her. She's got such a great... Uh memory and uh, relationship with all these artists that you'd be like, oh yeah, no, they're very good at landscape. So I'll give this, mm -hmm. this uh, piece to them, which has, you know, describes the supernatural, you know, landscape in this way, or like they're very good at faces, but they're not as good with dragonborn. So let me give this dragonborn one to, to uh, this artist who really brings the dragon expressions to life and all that stuff. It's, it's really a wonder to hear her describe uh, the, the different talents of uh, the artists that she's worked with uh, in, in a way that like, Reminds me of a you know a baseball manager talking about the 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 players on their team or you know the different tools that you know a, a different actor can bring to a different you know script you know it's 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 all in that same collaborative atmosphere and it really doesn't just come from from on high it comes from from the creativity of the artists themselves. Yeah, yeah, for sure, and and their their wonderful creativity is on display throughout this book. Uh, people have gotten uh, some nice tastes, I think, of it in previews that we've done. But to me, there's really no experience quite like seeing all the art together in the book. Yeah. And then that art presented by uh, Trish Yoakum, the lead graphic designer of the book, who, you know, contextualizes all of it with the, you know, the different the different beautiful little flourishes you see on the page, the color scheme uh, that that ties it all together. Uh, and all of those elements working together, the text, the graphic design, and the art, is really a manifestation of our very holistic creation process. Mm -hmm. uh, because, I mean, as you two well know, uh, you know, it's definitely not like different teams sort of in silos passing things to each other. We really work as a single team, especially in the final month or so of work on the book where we we often joke about that we essentially we voltron into you know this <laughs> you know this this single being to to create uh, the D&D books that people end up seeing uh, on their shelf. Yeah, whenever we ship a book like this I always think of the um, excellent video that the Adobe Create magazine created with you uh, Kate Irwin and uh, Emmy Tanji uh, in that situation putting those 
the books together, and it does. It is a Voltron of you guys all coming together around the galleys and putting them all together, and you know, describing oh how uh, oh we need some more text to fill up this page so that this piece of art looks really great, and it uh, is a melding of minds. It's really really cool to see. Which we are we are in the process of doing that right now for a book we have not even announced. <gasps> dun dun dun. I know, I know. <laughs> Well, and it's not unlike the three of us mind melding together about uh, <laughs> what we're going to talk about next, which is field roast, field right. roast, and it's so sushi rice. Right <laughs> it's going to be delicious. <laughs> well, thanks so much, Jeremy, for coming in and talking to us uh, about all the amazing amounts of D&D material that is in Tasha's Collagen of Everything. By the time people are listening to this, it will be out in stores uh, in North America as well as digitally. Uh, and those of you uh, who are jumping in, I'd love to hear about how you're you know, bringing some of the stuff to life in your games uh, yes. here. And uh, Jeremy, what's the best way for people to perhaps tell you about uh, some of the fun stuff that they've made up in their games? Uh, please tell me uh, what fun you're having with content in Tasha's Cauldron at Jeremy E. Crawford on Twitter. Excellent. Well, we'll let you get back to that book that we have to announce soon. Yes. Voltron <laughs> right. out of here. So, Excellent so fun job. talking to you too. So always, always great to talk to you. And thank you. This is a wonderful book. We're, we're all so excited about it. So thank you and your team for all of the work you put into it. Oh, thank you. And thanks for all the work you've been doing to promote it. That's easy. It's easy to promote. They're it's sidekicks. I- Come on. <laughs> You're not fooling me. I know it's hard work. <laughs> all right, I'm going to go cook up some field roast in my cauldron of everything. Man, it is always a wonderful time asking Jeremy all the questions. I just, I could just talk to him forever. It's I true. love talking to Jeremy. Yeah. It's very he is soothing. A soothing presence, not only in the D&D team and the D&D organization, but also in this podcast. So thank you, Jeremy. Yes. Double shot. Um, and uh, super proud of all of the work uh, everyone has done on T- Tasha's Cauldron of Everything. It's available now. November 17th was the release date uh, in North America. Those of you listening overseas will get it on December 1st. Um, and it is going to, I think, have a a huge impact on the number of people creating characters using these new sub- subclasses uh, and telling new, fun, and interesting you know, D&D stories with them. Yes. Tell us about them. I want to hear. I want to hear about your characters, all yeah. your new Tasha characters. That'd be super fun. Yep. Jump in. Uh, message us on the Twitters. I am at Greg Tito. You can get in touch with me there. I'm at Shelly Moo. That's Find you. me there. Yeah. Yeah. Ah. That's awesome. It rhymes. Yeah. And if you want to find out all about the Dungeons & Dragons, well, you can go to DungeonsAndDragons.com, follow on uh, Twitter at, inst- at Instagram, follow at Twitter on Instagram, <laughs> wizards underscore D&D at both those platforms, like the Facebook page, go check us out on the Reddits and our Discord server, um, but even more importantly, go get Dragon Plus on your phone right now. There's new issues and new information coming, including a gift guide uh, that if it has not dropped yet, it will drop very soon. Oh, I think it where is. all of you D and D fans out there can just basically forward this to uh, all the people who might be purchasing gifts for you, uh, because it is chock full of not only you know D and D books and D and D products, 
um, like uh, miniatures from WizKids or board games, but tons of, you know, there's a blanket, there's apparel, oh there is an awesome D20 lamp, um, all types of amazing things out there for you to grab. So much good stuff. So, so much good stuff. The gift giving and getting made easy. Made easy, exactly. And I, I bought myself a sweatshirt after I saw it in the gift guide. <gasps> you did? Yeah. Oh. From Heroes and Villains. Sweet. Yeah, I love this. I, think I love a this lot whole more, product line. I think a lot more people will jump in and do that too. Uh, with, I mean, it's 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 an amazing amount of of products uh, that are out there for you. So um, wear it with pride. Yes, we'll be twinsies. Twinsies. Uh, speaking of pride, uh, there is of course an amazing uh, T-shirt and uh, other fun fun stuff that you can purchase for uh, fundraising their Lambert House. Um, and there's are still available, I believe, right? Yes, they are. And they I got to say, that is like maybe your best segue ever. <laughs> <laughs> that was so good. Hey, as long as I can say speaking of noun or speaking of word. Really good. Like, I mean, people are going to think like we actually do rehearse this podcast. I, I mean, we it's not off the cuff. We talked about how you would, uh, you know, do an impression of a boiling cauldron for weeks, Shelley. Oh, that's just like a cooling a down cauldron. Mm-hmm. It's a little, it's, it's definitely more subtle. Down. Yeah. Yeah. Back to it. Yeah. If you were standing like five feet away from it, that's what you would hear. Oh, all right. I, I Thanks for putting some. us, you, you have all the skills of a dungeon master. I have uh, thought about this. You have, you're getting it going on. Um, and so is Drunky Two Shoes. You <gasps> oh, are in pursuit of a boat that left a town on the Sword Coast. Looks like it's headed towards Waterdeep. You impressed upon a sailor, smugler, uh, pirate uh, who is nameless still, but oh. uh, enjoys. Your company, fascinated with tabaxi, maybe not bright uh, or uh, especially insightful, but is willing to help you and has commandeered the boat that his former boss had and is in pursuit of this boat. And you are about 300 feet away as you cast gust of wind with the amount of beans that you consumed Mm -hmm. uh, to uh, push the boat at unnatural speeds. Uh, And so you are gaining onto this boat um, but you looked at it and you did not see any figures uh, that resembled a tabaxi. What do you do? But there is there an inside? There is an inside to the boat. Yeah, I'm going. I want to. I want to jump across. Okay. All right. So uh, in a couple of moments, the boat that you are on gets alongside, uh, and they have been hailing. Actually, one of the uh, humanoids on the boat says, "Why? What?" Uh, Who goes there? Why are you uh, approaching us so quickly? Hello, good sir. Hello? We have delicious mead to share. Party! (laughs) Make me a deception (laughs) check. Um, It appears 15. 15, okay. Mm -hmm. Mead, eh? Yes. That's the reason why you've come up alongside us? It's Tabaxi Day. Oh. Celebrate. You see him him kind of glance uh, down when you say Tabaxi. It's working. 
<laughs> uh, all right, so the boat is now alongside. Uh, Let's moor up here. And uh, you're still, you know, you're still in the open waves, though. So you're not, you're not, um, you know, at a harbor or anything like that. And so the uh, motion my, of the ocean is still occurring. May, am I close enough to to jump across? If you like. Okay. Um, yeah. Yes. So you you climb up a little bit. Uh, onto the railing and you attempt to board? Are you bringing any mead yes. or anything with you? Yes, a big pitcher of mead. And what was in those those boxes that were on like some... It looked like, like it was weapons. Uh, crates full of... Uh, I'll just bring some, some mead and some catnip. Where do you get the mead and the catnip? I mean, I was hoping you wouldn't ask. <laughs> <laughs> do you have some with you on your character sheet? Yes, well, in I any do. case, you uh, are you trying to pretend that you have some, or are you actually? No, I really have some. I want to assume that this pirate guy had meat in the kitchen, in the in the the, in the galley. In the galley, <laughs> yes. Um, I, w- I watch. Below well, he, the they don't. There, there is none there. All right. Well, I, it's a pitcher with okay. sloshing liquid in it. All right. Uh, so you go down in the galley. You look around. You don't see anything that. Do looks I see like- any alcohol, wine, anything? Uh, there is a um, bottle of rum uh, yes, that looks yes. like it has about, you know, it's mostly full, uh, I, stoppered I, up. I pour that in. Okay. All right. So then you, you, you kind of go down and then you come back up uh, and you leap across. So make me an athletics check uh, to see if you can make it across to the other boat safely while holding oh, a I have pitcher. No bone. Oh, good thing I rolled the wrong die. Twelve. Twelve. All mm-hmm. right. So you land kind of uh, precariously onto the deck and not quite gracefully. But um, I'm a cat. But you, and you spill a little bit of the of the rum. But mm. you're there. Hello, sir. How many of them are here? There are six men on this boat that you can see on the deck. Join me for a toast to tabaxis. Two tabaxis. One. And then they st- will pick it up next week. I'm gonna crawl. Please let it be Daryl. We might, we might see Daryl. It's hard to say. <gasps> what are we okay. gonna do? Wow, I just what had a Darryl moment. I just had a moment. Sorry. I'm so excited. I'm very excited too. Okay. We'll pick it up next week. Okay. Maybe we'll have a holiday reunion. Bring Daryl home for the holidays. It's the new movie that we are producing at Dungeons oh and Dragons. God. Bring Daryl home for the holidays. Yes, Daryl's holidays. Litter. This is you are turn. Yes, yes, yes. Make all my dreams come true. <laughs>